happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 80 for no, not November, for January the 3rd, 2018. My first time to say that on the air. My name is Wes Fryer and I am coming to you from Oklahoma City. And yes, the same spot as always, if you're happening to uh, watch this live or watch the recorded audio, but we uh, inherited some furniture from uh, my parents. And so the bookshelves have been moved away. But I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School and am uh, excited to be back at school. Um, and, you know, seeing so many folks work in retail and thinking about times in my life when I did not have a two-week uh, Christmas break, which I, I think probably might you know, be a sore spot. Jason does not. I think he probably, uh, I don't know. We'll ask him how much email he answered over the break. So welcome, Jason, all the way up in cold Missoula. Good evening, Wes. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Jason Neifer. I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual program that's located on the University of Montana campus. I was telling Wes pre-show, Montana has been dumped on by snow. And so I know that the, much of the United States is under a cold front and some wicked ar ar Arctic air uh, has kind of swirling around even as far south as Florida. But Montana is used to, to pretty tough winters, but it feels like we've had a pretty significant snow dump for the last six or seven days here. It feels like we're not quite keeping up uh, with the snow removal process, which is usually a swift and easy piece in a city like Missoula. But um, yes, the snow is significant here. And to answer your question earlier, Wes, I did not get a full two-week Christmas break, unfortunately. Our, 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 uh, I'm a university employee that's in a K-12 program, which puts me in a very kind of peculiar schedule. And so we took a couple of long weekends and called it good. And over that time, I did receive some emails, but I was also staffing the phones during that time period. And, and over the, the week and a half that our offices were of mixed openings, we received three total calls and one was a wrong number. So it was pretty quiet. So I was able to uh, clean up my office a little bit. That's something I need to do once in a while, whether it needs it or not. And uh, you know, I, well, I set up a, a Chrome desktop box at work and reworked some cabling. I did some very nerdy chores. So I'm feeling, you know, swiftly ready for the new year. So uh, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, we ended up on a lot of folks' uh, must-listen-to list, and thank you to everyone that acknowledged our podcast um, on either your podcast or your blog. But if you're joining us for the first time, the EdTech Situation Room is where Wes and I, once a week, and usually with a guest thrown in every once in a while, go through the week's headlines looking for kind of an educational technology spin on things. And luckily, the news very rarely fails us, and it provides us interesting things to talk about week in and week out. And if you'd like to check out our link, uh, and we do link to everything we talk about each week so you can dig a little deeper if that's what your heart desires. You can go to uh, edtechsr.com and you can find everything we talk about there and the links we use to kind of um, research our stories for the week. So, Wes, there's a lot of interesting things going on right now. Where would you like to start this week at EdTechSR? Well, I think I'd like to talk about CES, but before we talk headlines and trends to watch, I know you have some CES stories because you were there live. So what, what stands out from you for your in-person CES experience that's been a few years ago now? Yes. Um, well, first, it's insane. Um, uh, it's many, many people there. And it's not like ISTE and it's not like NCC, which is the, the Northwest Regional ISTE affiliate conference that I attend each year. Um, it's not even like some of the smaller uh, uh, tech events that I've been to in Montana, Idaho, and in Washington. It's it's all nerds all the time. And the, the things I remember from it there, 
First, the sheer amount of kind of tech all-stars there, podcasters and journalists uh, are just kind of out there in the open doing the same thing I was doing there, which is kind of gawking um, at the at the items. And also, and I think this is a good place for us to start, and one of the articles um, I'll look at is to take a look at 12 questions that CES 2018 needs to answer. And I thought, Wes, it would be a great exercise for you and I to answer those questions to see if CES differs from us in its conventional wisdom. But a lot of the products that get pitched and introduced at CES don't actually end up being released. And one of the reasons why that's the case is that CES is a testing ground for a lot of big and small companies alike to pitch ideas that may or may not turn into realities. And in fact, the last couple of years, for those of you that keep an eye on tech journalism, there is a an interesting game that happens in the last week of December, first week of January, where journalists will go back and look at some of the, the, the big things that were issues at last year's CES and find out what got released, what was held. Also, if the trends that, that tend to dominate CES became a trend for the year. And an example I have of that, and I think it was 2010's CES, was the year of the ebook reader. And there were hundreds of ebook readers released by companies big and small at that year's CES. And it looked like that, that ebook readers were going to become, you know, the tech to get and that they would be everywhere. Uh, $5 ones, $10 ones, $500 ones, all ranges of uh, interesting pieces. And then it turns out that Kindle thoroughly dominated um, everything in regards to the ebook reader market. So there are still other alternatives. Barnes & Noble has a Nook. There's something called a Kobo. Um, there's a, a couple Sony offerings that are decent, but the vast majority of e-readers sold in 2018 now are Kindle e-readers from Amazon. So um, I... There will be cool stuff announced. There will be headlines announced. But you have to take all of this kind of with a grain of salt because there isn't a guarantee that any of these products will actually make it to market. Well, I'll uh, yes, let's let's take a look at those twelve questions. I'll do a shout out to uh, a New York Times article from today, which says the big tech trends to follow at CES 2018. And as you might expect, uh, talked about you know the smart home, and as we'll talk about Alexa, Google Home, you know being able to to talk and get things to to happen in your house and that kind of race. Um, but also talking about smart cities, smart cars. But the thing that excited me the most, and again, this isn't something to be excited about quite yet because it's still like, this is 2020 probably, but it's next generation wireless. And in this article, maybe I've heard this before, but 5G wireless is a hundred times faster than 4G. And so you're talking about downloading movie size files, perhaps in as, as quick as five seconds. So let me throw that question to you, Jason. What is that going to mean for technology in schools if the wireless technology has, I mean, is that going to matter? Is, and, and maybe even for online learning, is that, you guys might, that might be a game changer in Montana if that reaches, you know, the the masses, so to speak. The, the wouldn't say the masses, but, you know, rural Montana. Live in right. Missoula and Helena, that might be great, but for the rest, it may not be the case. I don't know. That excited me. That was my mind. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, let's be super clear that not a lot of people have access to consistent 4G. And so um, you, it's probably 80, 85, 90 percent of the population has good, consistent access to 4G wireless. 
Um, but there's still a serious percentage of, of particularly rural Americans, and I can speak from that from the Montana standpoint, that just don't have access to the fast wireless internet that a lot of folks in urban areas do. And it's a, it's a little complex because it's not just about the fact that uh, maybe towers don't exist, you know, that have the newest technology in them in rural areas. In a lot of cases, the lack of competition in rural areas is also a problem too. And so in Montana, we effectively have two major carriers in Montana. We have Verizon and AT&T. I've never been an AT&T customer and I for a long time was, was a Verizon customer and T-Mobile Mobile is finally starting to make its way into western Montana. That's now my carrier because they a year ago they uh, kind of unofficially launched in Missoula, and so I'm now a, a full-time T-Mobile customer. And it's it's after a year, and it was supposed to take a year to get across the state, they're still struggling to get from border to border in Montana. Now, to be clear, for those of you who don't understand the distances involved in Montana, I'm in western Montana in Missoula, and I'm about an eight, eight and a half hour, hour drive from Seattle. To get to the other side of the state of Montana from Missoula, it can be upwards of an 11-hour drive. So I am closer to the West Coast than I am to eastern Montana. It's a massive size state, the fourth largest state geographically. And east Montana is not particularly populated, which means that there is little incentive for companies to come in and do the good work of providing those services, telecom services, wirelessly to places in Montana. So 5G could be a really amazing thing, particularly for mobile learning, right? Mobile learning tends to be a little more video dominant because that's a good device. The size of devices means that's a useful piece. Learning objects would trump long reading in a mobile learning environment. And that, I think, could stand to utilize uh, you know, really interesting things related to that, especially if the major uh, wireless carriers continue to offer their unlimited plans with 5G internet. And the other piece that's really interesting to me about the prospect of 5G, again, being 100 times faster than 4G internet, is that means it is going to be faster than almost everyone's home connection. And at that point, that starts to shake up the market quite a bit. Um, I don't think I could quite get away with running all internet through my phone in the way I use internet right now, but I have noticed that when I travel, in fact, part of the reason why I picked up a T-Mobile signal was that our T-Mobile line was that I wanted the ability to utilize this as a mobile hotspot. I've been able to, for days and days and days and days and days, only utilize the internet on my phone with my laptop and it being perfectly fine to do what I wanted to do. If that's at, you know, 1, 5, 10, 15 gigabit speed, that's massively fast, that's really tempting to me as a consumer. So we always bring things back to an educational lens, and I think we need to mention briefly net neutrality, and then let's jump into some of those CES questions. Um, we did talk about on the show a couple times, uh, several times this year, the net neutrality votes and the things that are going on with the FCC. It's going to be really important for us to watch what our you know, large carriers and ISPs do now that the net neutrality rules have, have basically been washed away and, um, you know, the gloves are off for them to, to do what they want. And I think it reminds me of, a, of something that happened when I worked for AT&T. So two years of, of my life, I, I worked as a, an education advocate for AT&T. That's what brought me to Oklahoma in 2006. And I had an, a conversation with one of our um, executives that were, we were talking about um, community wireless and 
you know, AT&T really doesn't have an interest in communities doing their own Wi-Fi. And the, the big thing there was return on investment. It's to what you're saying about Eastern Montana and these rural areas. We, we have a fantasy today, not to go too political here, but a fantasy today in the United States that, you know, if we just leave it to the market, everything is going to be freaking wonderful for everyone. And, you know, the fact is universal service for phones, meaning that wherever you were and are in the United States, you know, phone service will be brought to you. That has been an essential part of the telecommunications values of our country since we started to have phones and it, it became a reality for people. And so I think there's an important advocacy piece here, um, which even fits into digital citizenship and students being educated, not only about what net neutrality is, but also what is the proper role in place for regulation? Is there a proper role? And if so, what is that proper role in trying to provide for things like you know, bridging the digital divide, providing universal access. And there's been some interesting articles and conversations about, you know, how much Internet do you need? You know, and the ISP saying you really just need, you know, three, uh, three gigs or, you know, there's, there's some kind of a cap. And I think that the, the fact that Internet is treated differently today by wireless carriers. Right. So generally you're going to have some kind of a data cap for most carriers. T-Mobile has been wonderful as far as unlimited, but generally an unlimited plan is going to reach a cap where it's going to be slowed down. You know, all of that stuff is going to be pretty important to track. And I think that we need to talk about these kinds of things with students and find ways to engage them in these discussions because it's it's pretty important. And, and we're, you know, going in a, in a good direction as far as speed and access and, and things like that. But it doesn't mean everybody is going to get the access. And it also doesn't mean that, you know, just hands off the market is going to is going to lead to nirvana for everybody in terms of their access. And then I th- th- in terms of access for schools, too, I think 5G does present an interesting challenge from schools from this standpoint. Um, there's a prominent former tech director in Montana that now uh, does private tech work for, for school districts. His name's Jeff Patterson, and he used to say something a couple of years ago uh, that he would echo over and over and over again. He said, however much bandwidth you have right now, plan to triple it. And he said, there's not a district he works with in Montana that that advice isn't good advice. And that includes districts that were bringing in you know, gigabit, uh, uh, combined gigabit speed, large districts to do that. But he said, you're going to have to triple it in the near future and then triple it after that. Well, if in a world where we're providing Wi-Fi to students to get them to go through the filter, right? And, you know, I don't know if Wes and I have ever gotten to the filter rant uh, in, on this show, but it, filtering is important to your district and you're providing internet access to students so that you can filter it, right? They're using their phones to get on their district internet so that they have a filtered experience while they're sitting in the confines of your school. 5G internet, assuming it delivers on the promise of speed, even at a fraction of what they're advertising, is going to blow away your network, period. It will be much faster than what is currently available in either fiber-based internet. If that's true, your students will, you know, be camping out outside of Windows, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, under Windows in classrooms to access the 5G outside, not just because it's unfiltered, although I think that's less important to students, than the fact that their YouTube videos will come up lightning fast on their phones because of that 5G internet access. And, and honestly, um, ignoring the fact that a lot of schools can or won't invest in super broadband for their school, 
it may not even be available in most places, right? If you get outside of cities the size of, of Spokane, Seattle, Portland, Boise, um, in the Pacific Northwest, there aren't a lot of options. In, in Missoula, Montana, there's really just a handful of options, and most of them are based on cable or DSL-based internet. Uh, big districts here combine several services into one massive pipe to do that, but even if they wanted to, couldn't go much farther than what is currently available there. So that's another uh, twist here is that if 5G is 100 times faster than 4G, and 4G in some cases is already much faster than some open Wi-Fi connections in schools, will that really challenge then schools to then kind of, you know, butthole access into their district network? Well, let's jump into some of these CES questions. And if uh, you're not aware, shout out to Peggy George there in our chat room. Um, there's a great hashtag to follow here as CES kicks off. Uh, CES is the Consumer Electronic Show in Las Vegas. And I think the official hashtag is just CES 2018. That was the one that was popping up for me for Twitter. Um, it definitely, I would just say at the outset, you know, we, we risk the, and this happens a lot in, in technology with the ISTE conference and other things, you know, really getting overly excited about the shiny and the new and, and perhaps, you know, losing track of hopefully what should be our goal, which is how does this support learning? Where does this let me go that I couldn't go before? You know, back to last week's show with, with Beth Holland, where she was talking about a process that we should all go through as teachers, where we think about the content and the ideas that we want to share with students and the skills that we want them to acquire. And then what are the different ways that students can engage with that information? It can be sticky for them. They can, you know, interact with the, with the information, make it their own, and then demonstrate an understanding of that or an ability to, you know, fluently use that and express that. So, Jason, of the 12 questions, we probably don't have time to do them all, but we can do a few. What, which one do you think is the most engaging, and you want to you take a shot at it first? Sure, let's do the first one, because I think this is going to impact classrooms more and more for a reason that I'll talk about at the end of our discussion here. Will Alexa have a competitor? I think is the big question here. And intelligent personal assistants or IPAs, as I mentioned in the past, is some of the focus of my personal research as part of my doctoral studies at the University of Montana. By the way, side note for Wes, I filled in my graduation form today. And um, what's interesting about the IPS debate is that in the last three years, we went from almost every conversation being about how will Siri disrupt the world to now how will Amazon and Alexa disrupt the world? Because Siri is still only available on mobile devices, and a lot of people would argue that the user experience is not very good. Google Assistant is available in a home device, the Google Home, which I think is a, is a fine uh, uh, Internet of Things device, but all the energy seems to be around the Alexa. And the reason why I know that is because most of my family members received Alexas for Christmas, which is always the sign that it has gone completely mainstream when my family kind of tips over into one technology. It happened with flat screen TVs, it happened with cell phones, now it's happening with Alexa. And I think that that's an interesting phenomenon. So lots of products being released at CES this year that have Alexa built into it or talk to the Alexa Internet of Things network. They're called skills on the Alexa through Amazon. Um, Wes, can anything beat the big beast of Internet connected devices? Well, I'm hoping specifically that Google uh, is going to be now now that we are the owners of four Google minis. I, I don't know if I said that on the show, um, but that was uh, that was Santa Claus's big, you know, gift to West this year. Um, 
was was and the, there were two tech two two technologies that pushed me over the edge. One was the broadcast, where you I can go to my smart assistant and say broadcast, and it'll say that to all the speakers in the house. We use that in the house, not on a daily basis, but several times a week. Sometimes when I'm away from the home, but you know, even when we're here, hey, you know, it's time time to eat. Have your own intercom system, um, and then the simultaneous being able to you know stream Pandora or Google Play Music in, in all of them. My wife, I just learned today at dinner, has announced to her third grade class that they will be getting a smart assistant. And so I guess I'm, I was thinking about getting a Google Home since that's what we have now, but maybe it would be fun for them to have an Alexa and then she can, you know, compare because this is, it's challenging to think about watching exponential growth. And at CES, you, you kind of see that in terms of where, where are the TVs today? You know, how many more pixels are they packing in? And where are the processors? And, you know, we used to be watching that, you know, race to, to, to just more, more RAM and more speed. And we've kind of, that's plateaued a little bit. But with the smart assistants, we're really seeing an intriguing race. And unlike most products where you purchase them today, and yes, you can install software on a computer and that will make it protein great Scrabble word for you there and, you know, allow it to do more things than it could do before. Um, you know, a smart assistant. Oh my gosh. It, it really, you know, I, 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 this is your, I guess one year old news, but you can order a Starbucks from your Alexa last January, you know, Starbucks announced a, and it, they rolled it out in just small markets, but I think it's everywhere. If you've got like the iOS app, maybe, and hopefully Android as well, since I'm an Android user now, uh, you can set, you can specify what your favorite Starbucks drink is and you can just say, Hey, Miss A will say to those people, as I shouldn't have said the word earlier, um, you know, or Madam A, whatever we want to call her, uh, order my usual at Starbucks and it'll initiate that order at your, at your favorite store. So, um, I, we just, we know AI is gigantic. We know that Google has, has announced its entire product line is, is switching from a mobile first to an AI first worldview. And so, um, you know, I purchased the Amazon or sorry, the, the Google home, you know, with, with a bet on Amazon with, sorry, I'm going to just flip all my terms here with a bet for Google. Because I think Google has so much, you know, capability with with all the information that they have, and I don't, I honestly don't think Google is an evil company. I've I drank the Kool Aid and I'm still sipping it today, and I'm a little bit more wary about Amazon and the ways in which, you know, I guess I'm a little bit more comfortable with a company that's that's out to advertise to me than one that's out to to you know dominate all all retail. So, do you think uh, I should encourage Shelley to get an Alexa for the classroom or stick with the Google Home, Jason, or are you neutral? No. Well, as you know, Wes, we have both, and we have a Google Home that's literally sitting quite near the uh, um, uh, quite near the Google Home, so we have them right next to each other, and so we can go back and forth. And um, what's interesting is that not just me, but my wife and our exchange students, I guess my 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 uh, uh, temporary son, <laughs> yeah, we they, they're able to go back and forth too because they learn fairly quickly what the and I should shouldn't say that word either the divine a and the Google Home do better, right? As an example of that, um, Alexa, the Divine Miss A, does a great job with skills, right? Because you can install extension skills that, that do all sorts of amazing things. But 
the Google Home, in my humble opinion, backed by Google Search, does a way better job at things like factual checks when we're doing dinner discussions um, uh, and those pieces. And that's where, and that's one of the reasons why that, uh, from an educational standpoint, I'm, I'm still a little surprised that Siri hasn't taken off more in classrooms. But more importantly, like Alexa is, I don't think is going to be as much of an educational tool, right? Google's got Google backing it, right? The Google Home's got Google backing it. Siri has, well, also has Google too, although I, I think it kind of keeps going back and forth. I think right now it's backed by Bing search, but I think they're going to go back to Google because it's better. But the other piece of it too is they have Wolfram Alpha uh, also integrated into the Siri search too. So from a classroom standpoint, I think the Google Home and the Siri devices, and at some point they're going to have a speaker available, although it keeps getting pushed. That is probably a better classroom tool. And that's what makes, I think, uh, the, the rise of the divine Miss A a little more complex from an educational standpoint, because I think it's cooler and I think it's more functional unless you want to ask it questions. And that's mm -hmm. where I think the Google and Siri platforms happen to dominate. Awesome. All right. What, what other questions should we tackle here? Well, um, I, I, I guess I would say the uh, briefly talking about one of the big things about CES every year is, is televisions and the way the CNET article that, that we're going to this week terms it, where does TV and, and display tech go from here? And I guess I would maybe just pose the quick question is, it, I mean, how many Ks do you need before it's going to be, you know, more than you could possibly fill it with actual media. This year, apparently, there are um, reasonably priced is probably the wrong term. We're talking about five and six thousand dollar television sets, but eighty inch. 8K televisions are being shown off at CES this year. I'll be honest, I don't even have a 1080p television at home. Um, we have a 32-inch 720p television, and I've never been a, a super big screen kind of a guy, except for monitors. That's a whole different story. But with televisions, I've never seen the need for it. But it seems like now you can go out, as in a classroom, for example, you can buy 55, 65-inch televisions at 1080p, some cases 4K televisions, for $400, $500, $600. No, so we've gotten them for $250, $320 from Amazon, Insignia 55-inch, that is our standard price. So my educational lens for this is, yeah, do we need 4K? Do we need 5K? Did we need 3D? No. But it really is a wonderful thing in the classroom yeah. um, to kind of go a little bit lower tech. I mean, we've been using the yeah. LED bulbless projectors from Epson, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's right. Um, and, you know, those have been have been good, but... You know, it's it's even easier to just have a TV remote control. Your audio is built right in. Uh, HDMI, it just, it's been wonderful. And so over the last two years, year and a half, um, I've been helping, um, you know, and, 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 and I guess orchestrating an upgrade to projection at our school where we had in our middle school and our, our uh, elementary, our what we call our lower school, you know, projectors that were nine years old, nine and 10 years old. These are like sub 1000 lumen projectors that were just really not, not great at all. And so, um, when we looked at projectors, you know, it was about, then these prices have changed a little bit, but it was about $750 a year or so ago to get, uh, it was a 2200 lumen projector. That's now a 24, 2600 lumen. Um, sometimes we get that for a little bit less, but, you know, the, the TV was about $350. So we could get an Apple TV plus a television, but you've got to think about screen size 
And it really does need to be a bit of a smaller room for a 55-inch TV to be great. We've had some larger classrooms. We have one where a teacher has, who is an early adopter of that, went ahead and went back to a projector and a, a, a larger, you know, projected image. So for me, the biggest thing here on what comes next, when you consumerize technology, that changes the game. Right. And when in seeing smartphones and, you know, kids coming to, to school, we don't really need to buy camcorders for school anymore because there are so many smart devices that can take pictures and take video and students can bring that, you know, into a, a, a another computer or, or via the web, a cloud based we video scenario that there's ways they can edit. So I'm excited for the continued consumerization of television in terms of its greater capabilities and especially size because only in the last year I think now we we can order a 65 inch TV for less than a thousand dollars I think the last ones that we ordered and we've got a got a couple now um, was something like 900 950 bucks and so seeing 65 inch push 70 when you jump when you 55 inch is a pretty big jump in terms of price when you when you're looking at buying. And uh, certainly when you go beyond 65 up to 70 or 80, you know, you're talking multi-thousands dollars. So I'm excited to see that and uh, we'll be, you know, continuing to, I think, work with our faculty. We're Part of the deal is, you know, we are providing multimedia in each classroom. So you have a projection device, you have a laptop, uh, you've got audio, you've got Wi-Fi, but we've actually... Uh, that's a, what is that audio? Hold on, my phone's just really weird. Keep going. Okay. Um, you've got um, – we're, we're, we're giving teachers a choice about what they're interested in or what what, the, what they think would best meet their needs because a lot of right. folks didn't need a smart board, and, you know, we had a lot of, have, have right. had a lot of smart boards in there. So, anyway, well, I'm excited about that. And I think you should – you need to watch Best Buy, Jason, because when they decrease the prices, and, and they will on those 55-inch yeah. insignias, yeah. I was able to do an order for school where it was it was 250 bucks. In fact, with our own money – course you know we're not using school money to get stuff at at home but i i went ahead on the, on the side and said okay for 250 bucks we're gonna get a new television and that yep. was like wow well and i know and i believe this actually for quite some time but there is no way i would go back into a classroom with a projector like a television would be absolutely what i would use there for no other reason i know projector bulbs have, have moved to technologies that don't burn out as easily but you can keep a tv on 24 7 for years and years and years and years and years and the bulb never burns out in in the, the back lane of that television whereas projectors have a shelf life to them and they overheat all the time and they're full of technology that tends to to fail with with aggressive of use where a television does not. So yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. I think the the almost commoditization of large TVs, uh, whether they're your 4K, 8K, or just 1080p, I think is is a great benefit to us all. So Peggy's encouraged us to talk a little bit about Apple Battery Gate. So why don't we uh, we shift to that? And uh, Jason, was it a surprise to you to learn that Apple slows down their devices when they get older? In part to I guess. Uh, you know, improve the the, uh, the user experience. I mean, that ostensibly that that was why they said they were doing this, or why analysts said that. Correct. Right. Well, yeah. And my guess is, if you're listening to this podcast, this news has been something you've been following closely. But the 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 too long didn't bother to discuss part of this is that uh, a a someone figured out that their 
their phone, which they'd had for some time, that had several battery cycles on it, had slowed down to almost a fourth of its original speed from a clock speed standpoint. And after digging into some code and then approaching Apple directly about it, Apple came clean and said that for for phones that, that have batteries that have been compromised, and what I mean by compromised is they've been cycled so many times they're starting to lose their ability um, to uh, kind of keep a juice for a long amount of time, right? So batteries don't last as long after the 100th, 200th, 300th cycle. They slow down the phone in order to keep battery life stable. Now, the way Apple announced this was a little different. They said it wasn't about keeping battery life long. They said that they were experiencing issues with the phones to where older batteries, the phone would shut down uh, prematurely before the battery was actually out because the batteries they were using um, uh, tend to become unstable at lower amounts of charge. That's a little more of a plausible scenario than just the battery wasn't lasting as long. But Apple came clean and announced uh, that they were going to, as part of a makeup for this, uh, replace batteries in, I think it's iPhone 7, 7Ss, and I guess 7 and 7S, maybe it goes back to 6, 6, 6S and 7, 7S um, for $29, which is like a third of the price they would charge otherwise uh, to, to get a to battery replaced. So I, first I should ask, Wes, is this impacting any of the Friar House iPhones? It does. You know, we actually replace batteries on an iPhone 5, which has since been updated, and then on, I think, an iPhone 5 Plus, and, you know, it's about a $70 deal. Uh, Peggy was asking how you check the cycles. I know on the Mac, you can go up to the Apple and say about this Mac, and when you uh, click on System Report, you can get some very detailed information about all kinds of things with your device, including your battery, and it'll talk about, you know, how how um, how many charges you've had. I kind of I'm not sure if you can get this just from looking at the iPhone if you've got to take it in, but all you know, Apple keeps all that kind of documentation. So yes, we have had to buy additional batteries. And you know, the number one thing I've loved the most about my Android phone has been the 500 milliamp battery and the fact that it that it lasts so long. You know, relative to to the the Apple one. So I I liked you put in that recode article from um, from. Uh, I guess December 28th, uh, Apple's response to its iPhone slowdown controversy is good and a lesson to be more proactive about communicating. And there's a good contrast there into what was called at the time Antenna Gate, which they said Apple had sold 60 million iPhones at that point, and that was Steve Jobs responding, and it sold more than a billion now. And anyway, just kind of kudos for Apple in the way that they handled this. Because, um, like you said, it's if it's presented as, "Hey, your your battery's unstable; it's not able to do what it needs to do." We're just trying to, you know, you know, manage your phone a little more and keep it stable. Um, anyway, it seems like they've handled that well, and uh, it's important to see how companies and individuals respond to you know, the latest controversy. And so, I think Apple has has done a good job responding to this. So, I think didn't I read somewhere that, that they're going to offer something like a reduced battery update, uh, maybe twenty nine dollars or something? Yeah, twenty nine dollars is the is the uh, the price right now. And before it was only if your phone had shown signs that the battery was significantly worn, they were going to do a test on it. And I think it had to be below eighty cent eighty percent battery health, which is a pretty pretty uh, torn down battery. Eighty percent battery health, uh, you might be only getting a couple hours a day out of a battery at eighty percent health. But uh, apparently that they are have, have turned on that and will now replace any battery for twenty nine dollars. And what that's also done too is it's it's 
torn down the pricing of third-party replacement batteries. For example, iFixit, which is a company that helps you basically take apart your electronics. They sell kits and release guides on how to tear down electronics. They are now cutting the price of their Apple iPhone battery replacement kit to, I think it's down to under $29, like $25 or $20. Uh, the battery itself is, is only like a 4 or $5 product, and then they, they want to sell you the tool set to be able to do it yourself. And my understanding is in big cities that have thriving marketplaces for third-party battery replacements, the price of iPhone battery replacement is also going down. And so there may be a significant upside. Um, I agree with that article that talked about how Apple did a pretty good job of communicating this. They they didn't obscure the story at all. Uh, they, became, they came out very cleanly to describe what their process was. But the one thing I would criticize Apple for is they should have made this a consumer choice. I think that it would be easy to put in. You, you could even hide it in settings so only advanced users know where to find this. But it's, it's a simple one. Prioritize battery life or prioritize speed. And that's all you need to do. Right, one toggle and set it uh, set it to you know prioritize uh, a battery life because that's what Apple prides itself on. And let's be super clear, mobile wise, there's no competitor to the stability across the whole range of products that that Apple provides for for mobile battery times. I mean, I've had iPads that sat in a box for six weeks that came in a full charge, and I fire it up six weeks later and still has a 74% battery. It's it's really unreal. But really, Apple should have given choices to consumers here. And quick shout out to Peggy. I've put a link in the show notes uh, from Phone Arena. Apple blocks third-party apps from checking battery cycles, but apparently there's a piece of software you can download to a Mac or PC, plug your iPhone into the USB port on your computer, and there's a piece of software that comes with a seven-day free trial that tells the number of cycles that your iPhone battery has gone through. And if you happen to have an Apple store, which there's obviously not one of those in every town, but in, in the larger metropolitan areas, um, we're fortunate to have one here. I think we're the, maybe the one of the smaller areas in the, in the country to have one. You can go in, uh, meet with a genius and they will plug it into their magical system and they can tell you all kinds of additional diagnostic things about that. It'll be interesting to see if those same kind of tools become available to us. You know, you can, you can net boot your Mac laptop and then there are some ways to access some of their diagnostic tools via the web, and as mobile continues to march forward, it'll be interesting to see if some of those become accessible and available to us. So, Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I battery, in fact, that's one of the questions that's in that CES uh, 12 Questions article. Battery is still not where it needs to be with mobile devices, right? There's lots of very encouraging news. Microsoft News a couple weeks ago, they are going to release an ARM-based laptop that has a 24-hour battery life. That, that's all really interesting, but the bottom line is that isn't battery technology being better. That's CPU technology being better. And the hardware and software platforms, you're sipping battery at a lower rate. But we still need a battery revolution somewhere. And I keep thinking that Elon Musk, you know, in his in, in the three brain cycles the guy has left during the day when he's off inventing other things, should be spending some time on the mobile battery issue. Because it, it let's let's be honest, batteries run the world now and almost all of the devices devices we utilize, especially now that laptops dominate desktops and mobile devices dominate laptops in consumer sales, our devices are battery driven. And so I think, you know, 
revolutionizing this technology. And Wes, am I making this up? Didn't, didn't were there stories four or five years ago that Apple had some secret lab project that uh, was going to you know release new battery technologies and it was coming soon and yada yada yada? Or am I making that up? Was it just I mean, a, it, it could have been. A, it could have been a rumor. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of rumors flying around, but I don't. I don't remember that being. Uh, I don't remember that. So yeah, someone do this. Like it, it's time. Right. And and I know and I know for a fact that there are there's lots of universities, for example, that are doing work in this area. But man, can we use a use a battery revolution in the United well worldwide? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Well, hey, where would you like to go next? We got a well, couple good possibilities. We, we might have buried the lead a little bit here, and in fact, this is such a news story that I feel obligated to play our breaking news bumper. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, you've actually co- got a bumper. Oh, and of, well, and of course my... Uh... This is what you get with a live show, folks. There's That's no the, here. The famous <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> That's our breaking news bumper. Um, so there was a story that was released this afternoon, and this was actually leaked a couple days ago, and there hasn't been as much media around it. And in the last six hours, there's been an extraordinary release of articles across the tech news universe. But if, there it goes, just a moment late. So... Man. For, the, for the record, is that your Android phone playing that? It is my Android phone playing that. <laughs> a little slower. All right. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, so apparently that there has been a, a found vulnerability in Intel-based chips on CPUs in both desktop, laptop, and mobile platforms. Now, here's the piece here that's really interesting. Most of this news earlier this week was related to Intel having a flaw, but as it turns out, AMD processors, which are popular in laptops and desktops, and apparently ARM-based processors, because Google has announced that they are patching vulnerabilities in Android phones, which there are Android platforms that run on what's so-called x86 or Intel-style hardware, but the vast majority of phones run on um, ARM processors, right? So that that's interesting to me that this apparently is a massive hole across many architectures of processors. Now, the best I understand the vulnerability, um, apparently there's some issue related to caching of data on chips themselves that can then be accessible to hackers that have access to your, I don't even think you can get physical access, but somehow could utilize a software service to pull data off of that memory. Now, the reason why this is interesting to me is not just because it was so desperate that Microsoft released a patch already for Windows 10. If you're a Windows 10 user, keep an eye on your updates in the next uh, 24 to 48 hours and install any update that's there. If you're in a school district that is pausing updates or you're six months back on updates, consider going to the most recent updates to make sure you're getting all the security patches for this. And although there's been seemingly no vulnerabilities in the wild at this point, a lot of tech journalists are saying this is possibly apocalyptic because of the extraordinary amount of data that can be sucked off of a device that have these chips. 
But here's the interesting part of this. They can't fix this from a hardware standpoint because, you know, they're not going to show up at your house with a screwdriver and start digging around your CPU. So they're fixing it with software solutions. And all the articles that I've read uh, earlier this week when this was just a rumor suggested that this may substantially slow down both Windows and Mac platforms because most of the available fixes are very cumbersome and add a ton of pressure on the central processing unit, so the core of your computer, to where it will be visibly slower to you as an end user. So I guess, to start with Wes, um, any any initial reactions to the threat of this? Yeah, it reminds me, if, if you all want to go back to episode 78, so two episodes ago, uh, had an article from University of Michigan News, Unhackable Computer Under Development with 3.6 million DARPA grant. What that research project is trying to do, if I'm reading it right, is randomize the location of where things are saved to address uh, security vulnerability issues um, and that's a futuristic thing, right? That's not a, a current technology. Um, I think it's it's super interesting, it, and it remind I mean, reminds me a little bit. We haven't turned on deep packet inspection on our firewall at school, and what that allows you to do is to crack open um, <laughs> packets and and see inside for what what people are streaming. But it really can put a major major uh, bog down on your firewall, and you've got to have a, a pretty new firewall and, and a really fast one to be able to do that and handle that kind of processing. Well, similarly, it sounds like that's what the software is going to is going to require here. So um, I don't know. It's it's also I mean, what to what degree is this going to be exploited? And and you know because there's we have uh, you know vulnerabilities in theory, and and sometimes you know with with Apple in particular, we would see people do a lot of wing flapping and you know being concerned, and it's like yeah, this is theoretically possible, and I don't know how much you know in the wild that this kind of thing is going to be exploited. But it is interesting to see that I think one of those articles, um, yeah, the TechCrunch article from January 3rd, Google's Project Zero team discovered critical CPU flaw last year. We've talked a few times on the show about this idea where when you have vulnerabilities that are identified, you know, should security agencies hide those and be able to use those for, for national spying or should they go ahead and report those directly so they can be fixed? And, you know, in this case, you've got evidently one of the largest flaws. I, I don't know if, there, if this has a precedent in terms of the numbers of impacted devices. And, you know, part of what's brought this out is folks have seen developers, you know, scrambling to try and cover this. So I, I'm, I, I, again, it's, it's theoretical. We've got a lot of fear of this. Um, I want to read more about, you know, what the actual exploitation of this has been and um you you can bet that there's folks because this is a game right that that hackers and folks play all the time is that a, a vulnerability is out there and things are things that are announced and things that aren't announced publicly you know they're trying to exploit so it sounds bad sounds like it doesn't have a precedent um but i think i need to read more before i get really worried and concerned. It could be a reason to upgrade, though, because if you're running in older systems and, and the fix is going to require significantly more processing power, you know, that could increase your refresh cycle, perhaps, uh, at school because you're going to, you know, your, your machines that you thought were going to be lasting five years may, may not because of the slowdown that they're going to have to have after this patch is applied. 
The other thing I would note is that you mentioned that the Project Zero, the articles from TechCrunch, and the other reason why I like that article is because it talks about that Google has already patched its Google Apps and G Suite software to to, to prevent any uh, issue there. I know that Chrome OS is its next update will include a patch for this. Windows 10 is 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 released a patch already for this. I would be wouldn't be surprised if uh, there's an emergency patch by Mac OS in the next you know 48 72 hours, and I hope it doesn't. Uh, I have a, a an, an older but still a fairly speedy iMac at work that I hope uh, uh, survives that that particular patch with its kind of speediness. But uh, you know this seems to be happening a lot. Earlier this year, it was the Wi-Fi uh, vulnerability that that required patching. Uh, of, well, one one across one across yeah. one right. The the NSA had that whole forget what it was called the toolkit that got yep. you know put out uh in the wild and and then want to cry and that was the unprecedented thing where microsoft released patches to windows xp which they had said was put to bed without any you know future future updates right i guess that's right. one of my other thoughts that relates as far as school technology is you yes. know what is your enterprise organizational patch policy how often are you updating machines and we still have a f- some computer labs you know running around and of course we've got you know carts of mobile devices with chrome not a problem right we got that set in the admin console to randomize updates and nothing is really running on the beta channel it's all the stable channel but that just happens as the computers get used right a chromebook boots in eight seconds and a few more seconds to download the new update and boom there you go but you know with with lab computers we use deep freeze to basically lock things in place so students are not you know trashing systems or you know downloading viruses etc just makes everything boot up you know clean um, the security environment today is very different. And so personally, thinking about our school, this is a discussion that we're having right now, uh, is how are we going to uh, basically reduce the amount of time that we've been waiting between security patches? Uh, because these things can can be significant. And that's but it's but and sometimes that's hard to know. Is this significant enough for me to? you know, go to all the difficulty of making sure I roll out a patch. And also, I just say on an IT standpoint, we're not doing this on the Windows side, but on the Mac side, <clears throat> we run a caching server. We run an Apple OS ten server that theoretically, and I'm not sure that this is working for all VLANs and subnets and everything, um, but theoretically what is supposed to happen and does happen in, in a lot of cases is the first time somebody downloads a patch, it downloads to that local server, and thereafter the Apple devices, instead of going out to the Internet and taking that bandwidth and, and probably slowing things down for everybody, they get it locally from that local machine. So it's something I know that, uh, some of our partner schools or, or peer schools do uh, on the Windows side. I think you kind of have to be doing some some sophisticated stuff with policies and some other Active Directory stuff that we're we're actually not doing and into. But these are issues to look at. And again, I'd say kudos to Google getting it patched. And hey, with Chrome, you know we've already got a, a, a strategy in place, and it was just a click box yep. in the admin console. I would like to see that same kind of, of ease of patchability. That, that we have with Google, you know, on the on the right. Mac or the Windows side. I would add one other thought about you, your mention of, of, of older Windows XP boxes is something that that I uh, just looked it up. Seven percent of all world computers still run Windows XP, and you know, it's funny because I know that uh, Steve Gibson, the host of Google Now, I'm sorry, Google Now Security Now on the Twit Network, talks about how if you don't run it in administrative mode, that 
you know, uh, Windows XP is quite secure still, and it's the most, you know, adapted operating system in the world. But, you know, even though Microsoft did go back and patch older versions uh, for the WannaCry thing, I can't imagine that every major threat, and this seems to be happening every couple of months now, right? We had uh, two or three of them in 2017. We're starting off 2018 with a brand new one. As, as more and more of these threats are uncovered, I can't imagine that Microsoft will go back and you know, patch everything um, that, that that pops up as, as a particular threat, which means if you are using Windows XP in your school still, and I get it, right? Computers are expensive, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you got to upgrade because the software is not going to last or be secure forever. And, um, you know, and I, I would agree with Wes, that is part of what makes the Chrome model, you know, so persuasive. But I will note that the Chromebook Pixel 2013, the first Pixel released by uh, Google, uh, so it's a very premium high-end laptop, it goes out of updates April, no, I'm sorry, May 2018. So six months from now, that laptop, even though it's still a premium laptop by every measure, it's a usable machine. It's, it's, it's something that I would be, I, I am proud to carry around in a bag. Um, even though I got it for dirt cheap, um, it is a, it's going to stop being updated, right? And Google's changes policies. Newer laptops are six and a half years now when they release Chromebooks. But when you have high end hardware like that, Google, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta understand that people will probably use it well past its intended shelf life. And I, I will continue to use my Google Pixel 2013, even if it no longer provides the, uh, updates, or at least for the time being, because it's a, it's a premium piece of hardware. So another thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we've got time for, I think, a few more articles. Um, Peggy has just shared actually a good additional one that I'll put in that list uh, from the register kernel memory leaking Intel processor design forces Linux windows redesign. Um, I'd like to briefly mention under the privacy yo heading um, an article from the New York Times on January yes. 1st called How Antivirus Software Can Be Turned Into a Tool for Spying. And we've mentioned on the show before that Kaspersky, which is a Russian-based antivirus, anti-malware you know, program, um, last year the Department of Homeland Security told all federal agencies to stop using Kaspersky because they believed it was being used by the Russian intelligence agencies to spy on the United States. And this article from the New York Times says a couple interesting things. Kaspersky, uh, which, full disclosure, is the antivirus tool that we're using in our school. I don't think we have classified U.S. secrets, and so I don't think, you know, we're at risk here in terms of that. But <clears throat> it says a couple things. Number one, that the Israelis allegedly had been watching. They had done some basically hacking of, of Kaspersky, and they had watched Russian operatives um, basically pull off, you know, classified information off of different machines. But the biggest thing in this is it was reverse engineering. And what they showed was you don't have to hack Kaspersky. You can, you can hack the machine, but then access the essentially like definition files that it's using to identify malware. And in the article, it, it talks about um, a, uh, a short, you know, not shortcut, but uh, abbreviation that is uh, oftentimes used for uh, secret documents, uh, TSS-SCI, uh, which stands for Top Secret Sensitive Compartmentalized Information. And so they simply added that text as a rule within Kaspersky's antivirus program, like within the definitions, and then, boom, immediately 
it picks up that document. Now it gets more interesting too because Kaspersky asks you to give permission to quarantine things and then to send it up to their servers so they'll be able to, you know, identify what that threat is and, and be able to mitigate it. And so anyway, you could theoretically with, with the, with Kaspersky being hacked in this way, you know, find keywords that you wanted to, to have and, you know, it could be part of a pretty sophisticated way of pulling information and documents off of a machine. So we don't, I don't know. It's, it's from a school standpoint, and this doesn't change what I've said before. It's not, we're not going to be rushing off to, to change our Kaspersky license, which, you know, a year or so ago, I think we signed a five year, five year contract for, for additional licensing. But, we need to be very aware of the potential risk which antivirus software does open up as it says in the article you know antivirus and anti malware um the way they they describe it is it runs closest to the bare metal of a computer so it has very privileged access to essentially everything that's on your computer and i didn't run antivirus for a long time on my mac at all um, we're running at home Bitdefender that we've licensed with a family license and then school we're using Kaspersky. So, Jason, does this news cause you to think any differently about antivirus both at home and at, and at work? And uh, what, what's your take? The most recent advice I've heard from a, kind of a tech journalist was Leo Laporte, who's the host of This Week in Tech and the kind of empire builder of the Twit Radio Network, he doesn't use antivirus anymore, and it's because he feels as though, and he's talked in the past about, uh, you know, what evidence he has of this, and and he's certainly not the only one, but he said that it tends to cause more problems than it solves. In other words, if you're using good technique and you're careful, it's going to be better than opening up all sorts of holes in your system with antivirus software. And so I'm I'm pretty mixed on this. I've never used antivirus. Actually, that's not true. Very briefly, I used antivirus software on the Mac platform. Now I don't use it at all. Um, on the PC, there is a, a one free version. It's the Lifehacker recommended free antivirus, and, and uh, it's like a, v- a Vira, I think is the name of the antivirus software. It seems relatively um, uh, uh, non-intrusive compared to other antivirus software, but I, I think it's a real issue. And you know, the, the, I think that that you know, the threat of antivirus software where it is through things like free antivirus software, right? Like if you're looking to get out of paying $39, $59, a year, and there is a well-recommended piece of software that's free, well, one of the ways that people make things free is by selling data, by advertising, by opening up holes in systems to insert, not necessarily malware, but adware or things you wouldn't otherwise install. And so I think this marketplace is... I think conspiracy, one of the most trusted names of computer security on earth, not just even antivirus, I'm talking about computer security. Now that there's a cloud of suspicion around them, it further throws that market into turmoil. And I think we have to take some time to figure out what this looks like. And my guess is in the next three to five years, antivirus is going to look vastly different and the way we treat security is going to look vastly different. My uh, personal mission themes for 2018 remain the same from 2017 to be safe, be connected, and tell stories. And on the be safe note, uh, I'll, I'll just say what I've probably mentioned previously and, and learning this from different network security 
seminars and workshops I've been a part of, it's all about layers of defense. It's not about one thing. Um, you know, I've got that antivirus software and I'm all good. You know, it's about multi, multi layers. And so it really is critical for us in schools to be, I think, continuing to upgrade firewalls and to look at the ways in which, you know, next generation firewalls and the kinds of threat analysis and, um, detection tools, you know, what, how we're detecting those kind of things. The, a step that, that, um, I guess I'll disclose we are not doing yet, but it's, and it's been costly, um, is the whole intrusion detection, right? When you have something going on that's spewing packets and sending things that it should not be, you know, are our networks at school smart enough to be able to detect that, be able to quarantine that and, and, you know, basically protect the rest of the network from, you know, those kinds of threats. And so, um, this is a, this is an important conversation to have and it would be one that I'd love, you know, and maybe we could do this at an ed camp or something like that with some tech directors. Hey, what are you guys doing with antivirus? And if we think about the layers of your, your network defense strategy or your digital, you know, protection strategy for, for in, in clients as well as servers and, and the whole kit and caboodle, uh, you know, what are you doing different today in 2018, uh, than you were doing last year or the year before? And, and I definitely think that, we it's with with the landscape being as dynamic as it is um as we've said it's kind of a love fest for google you know chrome definitely makes a lot of this stuff uh pretty easy it's the, the legacy systems that are older that uh tend to be more challenging and so you need need smart networks and we also want smart users so to the point of uh possibly not running antivirus but making sure that we're being smart and safe with the things that we click on and you know the ways that we're using the web Absolutely so. So is there a final quick topic we want to do or should we geek of the week it? Well, you know, I'd love you for you to talk about the, the Wired article on why teens aren't partying anymore. I didn't have a chance to get to that one. Yeah, um, and this is a quick one. I may want to, to, to uh, punt the, the deeper discussion into a future episode. But basically, the Wired article says that there is an overwhelming amount of data to suggest the kids aren't in physical social spaces anymore because that's moved largely to social media. And so the party experience, which used to be a critical part of the high school and college social scene, is now being largely replaced by social media and the connections that students apparently feel inside of those um, inside of, of those platforms. And the reason why I mention this is because for better or for worse, we can't deny that the technology is doing something here, right? I still think we're far, far away from understanding what and what the implications of those things are. And, you know, the, the hand-wringing that, that's been inspired by the 2016 election, uh, especially as it relates to Facebook and social media, certainly are starting to inspire that discussion at a deeper level. But let's not, let's not pretend that this these technologies don't have a massive impact on humanity, right? And I, I'm not talking about, you know, good or bad, right? That's a that's a different discussion altogether, but let's not pretend that things haven't changed in the last 15 years and that this technology hasn't inserted an incredible disruptive force into our culture and our broader society. And so if you doubt that, I think watching teen and 20-something social patterns is a good way to understand that, right? If kids aren't partying, which is, by the way, the social experience for adolescents, right, then obviously something's going on. And I think you can also take a look at driving. Uh, it's been interesting as two of our three teenagers have, have gone, you know, to, to drive. Well, we've done driver's ed with them and they've become uh, independent drivers and talking with other parents and the in 
incredulity. Am I going to say that word right? Surprise that some parents have for, oh my gosh, you know, I just wanted to get my driver's license as quick as I can. And, and if you have conversations with different parents, you'll probably find some that have kids that, yeah, just wasn't that excited about it. And, and it, and it has got to have something to do with access to peers. You know, I grew up in a day where, there were some kids that had a phone in their room, but you know, most, most of them didn't. I think my wife tells stories about having this long line and being able to sometimes drag a phone to her bedroom and close the door, you know, and have a, have a private conversation. But what a different world that we live in uh, with respect to that. And so I think there, there, there could be some positives to that in terms of, you know, perhaps, you know, reductions in, in alcohol abuse or, or drug abuse and, self-destructive behaviors, but there, there's a huge side of this psychologically that um, isn't just about bullying, but it's also about, about peers. It's about identity. It's about the ways in which, you know, teens can increasingly view themselves through the lens of likes and feedback that they're receiving on social media. Yes. And this is an essential part of digital citizenship education and just education overall, right? I'm not an anthropologist, but I've stayed in the Holiday Inn Express before and I've talked to some and, you know, identity formation is so huge. And I agree with you, Jason, and I think we're underestimating the power of this and the importance of, of this in shaping something as as basic as identity, which is huge. Right. And let's also be clear, banning cell phones from your classroom does not stop this transition, right? And I, you know, I've, I, not that I've gone full circle on this, I think it's so much more complex than banning or not banning here in 2018. But at the same time, it's, you know, factors are impacting the way kids are interacting with humanity and we have to acknowledge that and we have to think about that critically as a broader educational field and you know I, I say it all the time and part of this is my also feeling as a historian there's been a uh, uh, few revolutions in history that, that have had the impact of I think the mass expansion of mobile devices and the only one I can think of that's competitive is the invention of the printing press and, uh, and the Gutenberg Bible and the, the, the mass expansion of religious texts that happened in Europe after the printing press was created that was a uh, you know every history book talks about that as a earth shattering invention right well that's what the cell phone has done for us right it has put the world's information in your pocket it's provided you with instant communication with billions of people around the world at the touch of a button and i'm not quite sure if we're quite grasping yet how powerful that that earthquake in our culture uh, is and will be in our culture Absolutely. I'll drop into our show notes. I'm going to be doing a two-part social media and internet safety class for parents and grandparents um, by themselves, and then a second part that will involve kids um, at our church. But then we're going to take that similar model and do that at school in uh, March and in April. And uh, anyway, we can talk a little bit more about that, but I'm these conversations are critical and part of what I'm hoping to do in addition to highlight ways that we can, you know, regulate and control and things is, you know, uh, the power of these devices and the, the importance of having conversations about them and the, the choices that we're, we're making and, and the ways in which they're, they're shaping us. Cause I think they're shaping us as whatever our age might be, you know, as adults, they're shaping us just as they're shaping the kids. And it's important to try to have a better understanding of that. And, and perhaps at some point, you know, take a step back and say, you know, is this a choice that I want to make? And, 
and and globally, it, or, you know, in terms of the whole school and everything, it, the choice shouldn't just be, you know, we're going to throw all of this away and try to bring back the Stone Age. You know, it's 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 going to be trying to work with these tools to um, hopefully mitigate and reduce the potential for for negative and 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 bad usage, and then you know, amplify the good. So I think we need a geek of the week, Jason. We're a little bit past the top of the hour. You want to share yours, and then I'll do mine quickly. Sure. Um, I posted this article. I actually got a lot of a lot of uh, traction on this on Twitter, and I've been testing it and at a very low level, and it appears that the, the advice is sound. But there's a great article from two years ago from Digital Inspiration, which is actually uh, keeps popping up on my feed for a reason. I, I don't – the articles are, are quite interesting. But it's basically how to run a script that then allows you to host a podcast – audio on Google Drive for free. Now, I'm guessing this is not industrial amounts of podcasting audio. If you have, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of episode or episode hits, this is probably going to, uh, Google's probably going to knock on your door and ask you to pay for something a little more industrial than the free Google Drive that's available to you. But if you're doing a school-based podcast or a classroom-based podcast that's getting dozens or hundreds or maybe even in the lower thousands of hits, there's an easy way for you to host a podcast audio on Google Drive for free and then send that information off to iTunes when you submit your podcast for the purpose of then aggregating that throughout the system. So really interesting article, pretty easy steps to follow. I've done some basic testing. The advice seems sound and an interesting tech solution if you're doing things like classroom podcasting. Awesome. And mine real quickly is a wire cutter article, the best cable modem. I uh, did some research recently because I had bumped our internet uh, to the, what is it called? Ultimate, I guess, level, which was, we were at tier three and wanting to go up to tier four, which would be 300 megabits down where, you know, we'd been more in the 100 to 150. And I've been like, why are we not getting this bandwidth? And it's been three years since we updated our cable modem. We went from what's called a Doxis 2.0 to a 3.0 modem. And I thought, yay, I've arrived and this is all that we need. Well, come to find out that modems have different gradient speeds in terms of what they can handle capacity-wise as well. Our son out in Colorado for college this year uh, in his own house, well, he's sharing a house with with other guys, um, they ran into this because the wireless uh, modem and router that they had initially was 100 base T instead of gigabit. And so they can get 300, you know, down, but they weren't able to get that when they wired in because it was only limited to 100. So anyway, this is um, just $60. You can pay easily 100 or $200 for these kinds of modems, but um, they have uh, greater numbers of downstream channels and upstream channels. And um, so this is like a 16 by four. And it says this is the, the, you know, what you need. And it's all this particular one, which is $60 from Amazon. It's the Netgear CM500 uh, is compatible with a wide range of ISPs as well. So in the not too distant future, I think we're going to be doing that. And hopefully that'll have a direct impact on our show. Perhaps I will not have to do my verbal enforcement of quality of service and uh, force my family to all stream off of their cell phones, which they are doing right now during our show. And they will be elated when I say the show is over because they'll go back to the standard internet. So they'll have 5g and then they won't care. (laughs) That's right. They'll just say, dad, we don't even need this home stuff. So that'll be a while, but Jason, where can folks find you online? 
Well, I'm at the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. I also blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blogged on ncc.org. And then I also want to give a shout out to um, the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance. Um, and I keep forgetting what our domain is learning. I'm going to look it up on Google while I fill this with. It's virtuallearningalliance.org. And it's a group of, of over a dozen state virtual schools that work together on curriculum and advocacy issues related to state virtual schools. And um, I happen to know because I'm involved in the project that they are going to be expanding a little more into social media. So if you're interested how good quality state public programs can help provide options for students in public schools, um, uh, the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance is an excellent advocacy organization. It's doing really great work in the states where it's active. So um, virtual learningalliance.org. It's another organization I am deeply involved in. So what about you, Mr. Fryer? I remain W. Fryer on the Twitters. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. I started a painful process of migrating to a new web host, which I hoped I would be able to do over the holidays, and I failed miserably. Um, and it also involves moving all of my 40-plus WordPress sites to SSL encryption, which ends up being a little bit more technical than just, you know, flipping a switch. But Speed of Creativity is the main place where I'm writing. And uh, I actually will go give a shout out to my wife, Shelly Fryer, who I think is going to be posting a little bit more on her blog uh, this next year, ShellyFryer.com. So I definitely assist and, and uh, we're partners in crime and coming up with uh, ideas for technology integration and looking forward to uh, actually co-leading a after-school scratch club with her, um, with uh, third and fourth graders, as well as we hope some fifth and sixth graders that we will rope into that. So we appreciate you joining us and staying with us. We've been a little bit later than normal. Generally, we're about 62, 63 minutes on the podcast. You can catch us live here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. or sorry, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 1400 UTC. Did you verify that, Jason? I'm going to get, I'm going to get some kind of a banner for the back of this and say 1400 UTC, because that will mean so much to our, our fans in, uh, in England and uh, the UK. <laughs> but, uh, we continue to share our links and invite any feedback. Uh, generally, I think you can always find a feedback a survey, which has really been ta only taken once by a gentleman in Tasmania. <laughs> We'd love to have someone else take that survey, but uh, we welcome all of your feedback. Uh, tweet to us. Let us know uh, what you enjoyed in the show, what you'd like to hear us talk about. We will be doing a Chromebook show coming sometime soon, um, but that has not been announced yet. And until then, we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy, be connected, and continue to share the knowledge with others. See you next time. Good night.